Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with a good friend of mine, Jay Binkowitz. He's an industry veteran and a visionary. And Jay is the founder of GPN Technologies. He's worked in private equity practice acquisition, and he's got a really interesting backstory about how he came into the eye care industry. Jay, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thanks so much, Scott. It's always fun to be with you and, and to do these together. You know, you just said before we went live that I get you. Uh, one of the things that's been fun about getting to know you is you're very much a guy who can go off the cuff. Is that from your upbringing? You know, we, we were taught to dance on our feet very quickly, whether we knew the tone or not. So uh, <laughs> pretty much. You're, you're from New York City. What was it like growing up there? Well, growing up in New York was kind of crazy days. Um, you know, my mom actually worked for a drug rehab. And my dad was a butcher, and and we were taught very very pragmatic ways of looking at life, you know, very simple ways. We grew up extremely humble, and um, I kind of joke around because back in the day I grew up in a house with no furniture, and and I didn't know that we didn't have furniture till I was like eight nine years old, and I I I had a play date at a friend's house, and I got permission to stay over, and I said uh, I said hey you know where's your playroom. And, and, he, and he goes, well, we're going to play in my, my room. I said, no, no, I have a big playroom. He goes, no, Jay, you have no furniture. <laughs> you know, it's amazing the things you understand as a child. And, but we, were, we grew up, we had everything we needed, but we can't say we had a lot of extras, uh, but very loving family. But we were taught, like I said, very, very good lessons in life. I remember my dad driving me past the cemetery one day telling me, hey, the only perfect people I know live here. <laughs> you know, or they replaced JFK in five minutes. Who the heck do you think you are? <laughs> you know, but those are really great lessons in life when you think about them. Uh, growing up in New York was, was, was a wonderful experience and two very hardworking parents that had five jobs and I had two older sisters. What are your sisters going on to do in life? Well, one is, and she's a career nurse who really rose to above well above that, she, very young, like 19, became a registered nurse, 21, running an ER ward, you know, just, just incredible accomplishments. She's my oldest sister. She helped raise me. She always reminds me that she diapered me. But, uh, but she was a tough act to follow because she was so smart. Um, ultimately, she ended up in private practice. She ended up running the private practices. Then she ended up becoming a billing expert. Then she wanted to be grabbed up by the software programs because she did an amazing job with their programs. Ultimately got grabbed up by a hospital. She's, she's the smart one in the family. And, and my middle sister is really another entrepreneur. She has a business called Revivals in Philadelphia. She opened up a consignment boutique you know, well over 30 years ago and became the place to go to, uh, one of the top consigners in the country where they had bus tours to her place. So uh, really just amazing things that both of my sisters have accomplished. I want to ask you, from a personal perspective, what the impact of your Jewish upbringing was in New York City. Well, you know, 
I guess that is an interesting question. I think the traditional uh, uh, stereotypes of you should become a doctor, you should become a lawyer, you should, all this kind of stuff plays a little bit into role. But the other part is go out there and earn the buck. You know, don't expect anybody to give it to you. Um, and if you're expecting other people to do things for you, you'll be disappointed. Now, all of those lessons came very strongly in life. I saw my parents working five jobs. Like I said, we, we grew up in a house with no furniture, so it's not as if we had the extras. Uh, for us, a vacation was taking a ride in my father's station wagon to uh, Pennsylvania Dutch and, uh, and going to Hershey's in Pennsylvania uh, and for a weekend. That was like an amazing thing. Uh, but you know, the value system we put into place was you, know, you don't take what's not yours. That was a very, very strong value system. And um, if you want it, you earn it. Like I wanted a stereo when I was a young man, uh, I was 12, and my father said, go get a job and whatever you make, I'll match. Like, wouldn't just give, you have to earn it. And I got a paper out and earned my money and my dad matched it. First car, go get a job and I'll match it. It was always those lessons in life, not to expect others just to give. Were those Jewish stereotypes just that, misperceptions? Are they misperceptions? Well, I don't know if they're, they're mis you know, I think so many cultures today, I, I don't even know if I call them Jewish stereotypes, but, but it certainly was that way in my house. But I've met folks from so many wonderful cultures that raised their children pretty much with the same lessons I had. You know, you know don't expect the world to, to just give it to you on a silver platter and go out there and earn it. And, you know, we grew up less entitled, I think. Uh, we, we just didn't expect the help from others. And so we had to fend for ourselves. I left the house very young. I was 16 when I left the house. And uh, I used to push racks in the garment center uh, during the day. And at night, I enrolled in a private high school. Uh, so, and I actually got out of high school early. And, and, um, and I was working in a flea market selling leather jackets as a teenager, making more money than some of my friend's fathers at that time because, you know, I was just out there doing it. So it was just, just the way things happened. The hustle. The, the, the Jay Binkowitz hustle. Yeah. You also were involved in other businesses. I know th through your dad's butchering that there was a meat business too. Yeah, so my dad and my uncle uh, took on a meat distributorship. Um, I had already become an optician and uh, they, in their late 50s, took on this distributorship where they would go in and uh, they had a warehouse and they would store food products and deliver it to the restaurants fresh on a daily basis. And things weren't going great for them. And I got a phone call from my dad one day and said, hey, we need your help. And so I stopped what I was doing. I was already in the, in, in the optical industry. I stopped what I was doing and I went to go help the family. And um, I was, I don't even think I was 22 at that time. And um, I actually, I hated the business. Getting up at midnight was not my idea of a life. And, and the whole grime of the business and, and the cadence of the business, a hard, hard business. It makes old people quit. And, um, and anyhow, but I was there to help the family. And about, you know, a year later, I fell in love with the business. I fell in love with the business. I started going around to restaurants. I started selling our products to restaurants. I, start, I, I drove the trucks. I made all the deliveries. I stored the warehouse. I cleaned the freezers. My father, my uncle taught me how to butcher meats. And and next thing you know, I, I looked at them and said, I just want to take over the business. And, uh, and that's what I did. And by the time I was 26, we were rocking and rolling. We, we were doing amazing things. And then I went into food manufacturing. 
which was a huge, huge thing. They ended up having a 40,000 square foot USDA facility. And I got to tell you, I didn't know any of this. Uh, what I did understand was I took, I merged three companies, three failing companies. And the only thing I knew was, you know, if you run three companies on one truck and one roof, instead of three trucks and three roofs, you got to save money. That's all I knew. And, and it worked. And, and so I had my first, you know, added a park home run when I was 26. So what had gotten you into optical? And then we can talk about how that ended up becoming where you ended up again. How did you get into it? So uh, when I was in high school, and um, I, I didn't even realize I was graduating early. But uh, one day I got called to the office and someone said, by the way, you're graduating early. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, are, you sure they weren't kicking you, are you sure they weren't kicking you out? I was like, oh, my God, did I piss you off? <laughs> and they were like, no, you, you, you did everything. You're done. Your grades are good. Go have a good time. I'm like, I didn't even think about where I want to go next. So I, I looked at uh, getting to Arizona State and really just for the sake of getting out of New York. And, um, and I'm flipping through a book one day of careers. And of course, you know, that whole, and this goes back to the Jewish thing, the whole, you got to be a doctor, you got to be a lawyer. Um, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, that really wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. And I wasn't committed to it. And I was scared to commit to it, to tell you the truth. And, um, and so I, I said, you know what, I, I flipped them through the book and I found optician one day when I was looking up optometrists and literally just flipping through a book at careers. And, um, and I said, you know what, I'll become an optician. I'll get a license for that. So I went to New York City Tech and got an associate's. I'll do that for two years. And let me see if I even like it before I commit to a, you know, a major career move. And I did that for two years. I got my license. I ended up working at Pearl Vision Center. I met some wonderful people that really taught me the ropes. But I realized right away that I had no intent of becoming a doctor, that all I wanted to do was own and run these businesses. I just wanted to run. And, um, and that really led me down the path. I started, I ran a few provision centers. Um, ultimately, then I got called by my dad to go join him in the food industry. Um, and then ultimately, um, <clears throat> my dad retired, my uncle retired. I moved on from the food industry, uh, doing very well. And I said, well, I got a license. I know how to run a business. I know manufacturing. I know retailing. I know distribution. Uh, this should work for me now. And um, I actually went to work for Lens Crafters because I'd been out of the field for a while. And that was a good way of, you know, getting my, my knowledge back. I met someone wonderful, Dr. Brian Berlina, who was the, uh, the leaseholding doctor at Lens Crafters. And, and he helped me learn the ropes. And he became my scuba diving buddy. Today, we're still dear, dear friends. And, um, and then after about a year and a half at Lens Crafters, I said, okay, I'm done with boot camp. And I went on to, uh, to answer an ad in the New York Times for a manager with Dr. Mark Stadlin, an American eye care in Astoria, Queens. I interviewed with him. I said, you know, I'm not here for a manager's job. He says, he, he, it was a very funny interview because he said, I feel like you're interviewing me. I said, that's because I'm not here for the manager's job. I said, I'm here to be your partner. I'm trying to decide if that's what I want. And he was like, what are you talking about? And uh, I said, listen, you have a beautiful little business here. I think I know what to do to get it to the next level. Why don't we shake hands, pay me whatever you can afford to pay me. And in six months, if we like each other, I'll be your partner. If we don't like each other, I'll leave. 
And that's literally how we became partners on a handshake. And we, we're still together to this day. And that was back in 1995. You have a history of self-direction, right? I, I call it hustling, right? You were, you're pushing the coats when you were young. You've, you've been able to go into these situations with such great confidence that the next big thing is ahead of you. I want to just before we go further in your optical experience in this partnership and ultimately building another business, what was it about being scared to commit to something more now that you reflect back on it? Was it leaving your roots? Was it what, what do you think it was? Great, great question. Um, you know, I, the, the commitment of four, six, seven years of education before I would get in the game, so to speak. Uh, is what, what, what gave me fear. I was, had so much drive to get in the game, to get out there and get my fingers dirty, to, to really start to make it happen, to be my own person right away, so to speak, that the fear of tying myself up for all those years and then coming out of it and saying, oh my God, I just spent six years. I just lost six years from being in the game and now I don't even love what I'm doing. So that was where the fear came. You know, in hindsight, I feel like I made the right decision, but I will say this to anybody in education, and I've actually pushed this with a few friends, um, getting an MBA, getting a business degree is, is the area that I missed the boat on. What I should have done is gotten a business degree that would have made some of my journey easier. It would have made some of my learning outcomes smarter and easier. Um, I missed the boat on that. I had to rely on hiring a lot of smart people to help me along the way to teach me as I went. Uh, so I, I would tell everybody, getting an MBA to me is a no-brainer no matter what you want. Well, one of the reasons we're kindred spirits is that we both have this observation about ourselves that we, we're comfortable with what we don't know, and we're very comfortable involving people who know what we don't know in the businesses we've run. And that's why I think you and I have always been so connected. And, I agree. you know... I think you got a street smarts MBA. That's how I always refer to it. Um, now that doesn't equate at all. <laughs> Neither of us are saying that. But so you're in this eye care business. You have to be a partner, and ultimately you get to build a data business. And it has to be because you understood that being a business owner again needed some additional intelligence. Tell me about the path to building what ended up becoming GPN. Well, it, it was really talk about being somehow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not overly religious, but talk about someone guiding your steps, right? You don't even understand sometimes the steps and the pathway you're on. Um, and uh, what actually happened was I went to China for my 40th birthday, uh, climbed the temples in Cambodia and did all kinds of fun stuff. And while I was there, I, I visited the factories in China to start making my own frames. And what what my partner, Dr. Stalin, and I knew was that uh, with managed vision care, we're better off making our own products. So I set out to do that. I understood manufacturing. I understood product procurement. I understood import and export. So I said, okay, let's go play and see where this goes. And we created um, our own frame lines called Richard Scott. Uh, my partner's middle name is Richard. My middle name is Scott. It sounded like a design. Anyhow, we did extremely well. We started bringing in products. We listed them in frames data. We sold the heck out of them. We made a lot of money. 
Then I actually procured the license of a contact lens out of Taiwan, and now I have my own contact lens line. So that all of a sudden, I had folks saying, hey, I, I want to do that with you. You know, I want some of your frames. I want some of those contact lenses. I mean, we were paying back then, I think, $5 a box for a 30-pack of methylfulcon one days. I mean, it was, it was crazy numbers. And um, so I said, okay, but I don't want to collect money, and I don't want to chase after you, and I don't want to deal with all the problems that come with distribution. So why don't we create a little bit of like a network, and you send the money to my attorney when we're ready to transfer money overseas, and take as much as you want. You know, I, I, I wanted not to touch the money because that's the pain in the neck part. We ended up calling ourselves a group purchasing network, GPN. And we got known not as the group purchasing network, but as GPN. We had about 35 customers, you know, through friends that we were sharing the product with, right? And um, through that, I ended up meeting Dr. Kirk Smick, Buzzy Sass. Uh, Tasman, Hobson, a whole group down in Georgia. I was invited to a meeting because they heard what I was doing. And I didn't know who Kirk Smick was. And still to this day, there'll never be another Kirk Smick. I don't know if anybody who's ever contributed more to every single human being in this industry than Kirk Smick. He, he's just, he's my hero. And, um, and he said to me uh, at that meeting when I was telling him what we were doing, he goes, this is fantastic. I love the way you talk. You need to start teaching doctors what you do. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But if you have a friend that wants to talk, tell me. He goes, no, I want you speaking in Vision Expo. I'm like, I've never spoken in front of anybody. I, I can't do that. He goes, well, you are now. And, and with that, I called up a dear friend, Mike Della Pesca, who's, uh, who's really well-known in the education area uh, with Quantum Optical. And I said, Mike, I've been asked to speak at Vision Expo. I don't know what, I don't know how to speak. How do I speak? <laughs> and Mike kind of laid the foundation to help me learn what to do. He set up my first little speaking gig in North Jersey so I could vet myself out a little bit so that by the time I got to Expo, I wasn't a total fool. And, and that became the, the, the opening door to everything. From me speaking and people listening, getting phone calls, I started consulting. We started helping people. We created our first consulting day called the Power Day in, in Georgia. And we invited doctors from all over Georgia to come. It was like a test. It was called the GPN Power Day. By that time, we were rebranding ourselves as the Gateway Professional Network, a gateway to professionals that you can then have resources from. Is but we wanted to keep the GPN because we were known as GPN by that time. And, uh, and that led the path to us discussing how are we going to consult? It's not scalable. If it's not scalable, then we need a technology. And so we then said, well, if we could see what's going on in their practice with the technology, we could help more people and never get on an airplane. And that led to the development of the edge. And as we continue, and as we develop the edge, it led to more consulting. More consulting led to more edge. And it became this unbelievable upward spiral where every decision we made lifted us higher. That was that's a journey. A, that's a fantastic journey. And today, um, you're not day-to-day -day involved in the delivery of Edge Pro software to the market, but it's a real game changer for so many businesses, both eye care owners and, and those in the industry that want to better understand eye care practices. 
I, I hope you're a little bit proud of it, but I know you don't spend a lot of time, you know, sort of doing that self <laughs> self recognition. It's it's a pretty impactful dashboard you have, and I think it's unlike anything in the market. Would you you agree? I assume. Thank thank you, Scott. I, I very much appreciate that, and I appreciate the acknowledgement. We we opened the door to analytics. Analytics didn't, as a matter of fact, when we started out, we coined it as optometric analytics and people got really scared of the terminology, right? Because back, back then, uh, knowing less was better. <laughs> and, and so people were scared of the information. The managers were scared of the information. And our answer was, you know, <clears throat> can't manage what you don't know. And, uh, <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> you're right, I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day of GPN although I'm still a, the, the majority shareholder there. And I have been blessed along the way with, with like you said, kindred spirits like yourself. I love our journey. I so have, have so much respect for your accomplishments, where you came from, your visions, and, and so many others that kind of fit into this little niche group of people that said, no, I'm going to push the rock this way. <laughs> and, and I guess that's who we are. But Ed Buffington... Love him to death. You can't not if you don't love Ed Buffington. There's something wrong with you. That's all I know. And and Evan Kestenbaum, absolutely brilliant. Josh Pensano, Katie Lauer, so, so many others at GPN who run the day to day, who have done just an unbelievable job to make my life easier. The smartest move I ever made was back in 2017, recognizing that we're always we're not always the right person to run our company. We reach a certain point, and you have to understand that we have our limitations too. I knew I took the technology company as far as I could. I knew it needed new DNA. It needed a new executive team. And, and I, I, Ed, Ed had retired from BSP on a Friday, and on Sunday I said, you report to work tomorrow. <laughs> and, and God bless, it worked out great for everybody. So, yeah, I'm still the majority shareholder there, but but Ed and the team run the day-to-day. -day. I don't get involved. And as part of this journey, talking about needing data to understand, you ended up going to work as somebody who was a practice acquirer on a private equity-backed venture. And my goodness, <laughs> your knowledge grew exponentially. I'm curious about your perspectives uh, that you've gained from being involved with these practice owners and trying to help them understand what their future choices are. Well, I have to tell you, I'm very excited about independent optometry, and I know that sounds odd uh, with everything going on, but I am excited. I'm excited by what I see coming, what I, the opportunities I see coming. You know, anybody who tries to hold on to yesterday lives in yesterday, but there's such amazing opportunities for independent optometrists coming down the path now that we would never even understand 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> Listen, getting involved with Dr. Bengatti and Paul Karpecki and Alan Glazier and Eric Schmidt and, and you know, David Cockrell and David, all these wonderful, wonderful key opinion leaders in the industry has been an incredibly enriching experience for me. Um, I very much appreciate the relationships we all have and how we've helped each other. Uh, but I'm, I'm even more excited about what tomorrow is. <clears throat> yes, private equity is here to stay. And I always say, I think Sue Downs is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think that if anybody says that she's not brilliant, they're crazy. She raised the roof in our industry. She brought value to every optometrist in this industry in a way that nobody ever has before. Um, you know, back in the day, you got 50 to 60% of a year's revenue. 
Uh, now people are seeing 100, 150, 200% of a year's revenue, and even more when it's suddenly a practice. That didn't exist before Sue broke through the ceiling. God bless her. She gave opportunity to everybody, to everybody. So I, you know, I'm a big fan of Sue's in that way. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think absolutely she should be acknowledged for her accomplishments. And she's, she's, she's very kind and very generous and very giving. But at the end of the day, private equity is going to be there, just like the online market, eight up contact lends a certain percentage, private equity will eat up a certain percentage. Um, and the relationships will continue to change um, and value will continue to, to be where it's at. But tomorrow's opportunity for independent optometrists to excel in the medical arena are off the charts, are off the charts. You can see what the alliance groups, IDOC uh, is a great example, or PECA, or Vision Source, or any of the alliance groups are doing with providing infrastructure and logistics for independence now, which they desperately have needed. I'm so happy to see that happening. Uh, and you can see like organizations like, whether it's VSP or Eslol, Exotica, or any of them are now into what do we got to do to help you be successful? You know, there's a bigger drive towards bringing resources and support and education and training and ways of helping independents grow their practice than ever before. And, and I, I've always said, when we were consulting full-time, we can only impact one grain of sand on the beach. We, you know, despite the fact that we were in 35 states consulting, we, we, we were barely a, a, a water pistol at a forest fire. I mean, we, you know, what could you do? It, we needed big industry to step in, and that's what they've done. And that's what excites me, that independents now have, for the first time in my entire career, uh, opportunity to tie into resources that didn't exist. That means that it's going to be easier for them to run their businesses ultimately. They're going to have different types of relationships moving forward. And the medical model is only going to keep excelling because we don't have enough ophthalmologists. So the demand for optometrists to up their game is going to continue to increase. I see nothing but incredible opportunities. I really appreciate your perspective on that. I want to shift back to a personal matter. You and your wife raise money for charity. I'd like you to tell us about that. It's, it's very near and dear. It's very near and dear to how we're defining our lives now moving forward uh, as well. Um, um, my, my, my cousin, um, <clears throat> we call him in, in, in Jewish terms called the Altakaka. The Altakaka means, you know, basically he's the old guy. He's the oldest cousin. Um, he's in Boston. My cousin Stephen. He's he's a potter. He's 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 famous. He travels all over the world. He 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 had the renaissance of raku pottery in the United States. He's done an amazing job uh, throughout his life as an artist. Um, he lost his son um, uh, to cancer, and um, during that period of time, <clears throat> they met up with Lance Armstrong, um, who was at the house uh, just prior to his son passing. And um, they joined the PanMash Challenge, which is all about raising money for research for, for, for cancer. And all of the money that goes to the PanMash Challenge goes to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And ultimately, uh, I was donating for years, you know, of course. But I said to my wife, I just don't feel like we're doing enough. So one year we went and volunteered. Man, there's not a dry eye. You know, for three days you cry, tears of sadness and tears of happiness. All the riders, all the volunteers, the logistics, all the work that goes into raising this money 
And they was and now they raise over sixty million dollars in a weekend that that represents more than half the budget of Dana Farber Cancer Institute. The beautiful part is 100% of the money goes to research, and you get to decide which department you want your money to go to. So I ride, my cousin's team is called Team Kermit, and Kermit has a, a great following. It's a 192-mile ride from Sturbridge to P-Town. I don't do the whole ride. Uh, I do a lot of volunteering. My wife does the whole ride. But, um, but we became passionate about uh, the research for pediatric brain cancer, and ultimately, the same doctors that couldn't save my cousin's son, years later, with the millions of dollars Team Kermit raised, was able to save the lives of other children uh, from the research we funded. And when you meet a child that you know is alive because you dare to knock on someone's door and say, give me some money, uh, we're raising money for this, man, does that motivate you. Oh, my God. When you get a hug from a child that otherwise wouldn't be here today, if that doesn't motivate you, then I don't know. I don't know what could. And so we became extremely passionate about that. I just launched last year what's called the Glorious House Foundation because my wife and I truly want to define ourselves this way in in our life moving forward. My mom's name's Gloria, and there's buildings named after my mom in the Bronx called the Gloria House. They're transition buildings for unwed mothers, places where they can they live safely and help with their children until they get on their feet. And that was the way Samaritan Village had honored my mom for her 30 plus years of, of, of servitude there. And, and she, she was a rock star. And so I started the Glory House Foundation and ultimately my goal is to support uh, what Samaritan Village is doing in, in their drug rehab and transition programs, support the research for pediatric brain cancer, and support a few local churches that I'm working with here in Charleston. And so uh, my wife and I believe in paying it forward. We've been blessed and, and, and we believe the, the right way to live our lives is to make sure that other people feel the blessing. Well, you're incredibly motivating and hopefully I'll be able to get from you a link that we can include in the description of this interview so people can participate and donate if, if they want. Um, you've pushed your whole life. Uh, you've pushed for something up. Upward spirals have happened. Somewhere along the line, you got the best advice you ever received. What is it? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Ed Buffington has been my mentor. Uh, no question about it. Um, <clears throat> I'm a person that generally needs needs a counterpart. Um, I admittedly occasionally can use some grounding. Because <laughs> I'm always I'm always a rocket ship, <clears throat> um, but at the end, and, and so Ed's given me some wonderful advice through the years. I always consider Ed a hybrid. Ed is the perfect mix of understanding corporate and being an entrepreneur in one. You know, he's that perfect mix. Where me, I was always leaning really on the entrepreneur side, and I considered a maverick in corporate. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the advice my dad gave me uh, throughout my life was probably uh, some of the best learning lessons I ever had, um, you know, which, which we started out talking about early on, about not to expect from other people to do anything for you. And, and you know, don't expect someone to hand you anything on a silver platter. And, and don't, don't walk away from understanding that anybody could be replaced quickly and easily. You're not that special. And, 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 and you know, 
so when, when you look at life in a more humble way, you, you then start to realize that those were, those were extraordinary learning outcomes. My father was the first one in his family to ever own a home. Um, you know, that was a major accomplishment. Um, you know, check the box. He used to say to me when he moved to Florida, you know, give me a break. I'm on, I'm, I'm, I'm on a fixed income. And I would say, dad, that's wonderful. Mine's still broken. <laughs> but um, I, I think some of the most uh, uh, simple uh, learning lessons I got were from my dad, uh, which related to, you know, being true to yourself and, and, and that, that not having that entitlement attitude. Um, and, and in business itself, I've been really blessed uh, from people in this industry as well as other industries that have taken me in under their wing and said, okay, you're a disruptor. We get it. Um, here's some things that you should think about. And, and through the journey of my life, I've had people do that. But I will tell you what my secret sauce is. Absolutely, in every business I've ever owned, uh, my secret sauce, and this is Believe me, not a, a gender statement, uh, but my secret sauce are women. I have found that the best compliment for me has always been a woman with a, a woman with a strong personality to be my right hand, uh, to to really really counterbalance and and help disseminate what I was trying to do. People that really got me, that were able to to imprint my vision on others and 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 make it. You know, Rebecca Johnson. What an amazing person in the planet. She helped build GPN by documenting my instincts. Because although I understood what to do, I didn't understand how to explain it all the time. Rebecca did that. Terry Rodham, another rock star in the industry, who, you know, who, who, who really helped propel the company and me, made me a better person. And throughout my business careers, I've always had somebody at my side that really helped propel where I was going. So I'm going to tell you, Scott, I can't take credit for anything I've ever done. I have to give the credit to everybody I've ever worked with. And, I, and I'm just privileged and blessed to have had that journey and have that opportunity to work with so many wonderful people. Well, Jay, for all of the work you've done for optometry, along with these people that have propelled you, I can't thank you enough. And thanks for being my guest on Sandbox Stories. Always fun, Scott. And you have to go on a next safari with us. <laughs> Can't wait to hear more safari stories from you. And to the audience, thanks for attending and listening. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.